Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey everyone, and welcome to season three, episode number eight of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, January 4th, 2019. Yeah, 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. This, I guess, would be the New Year's edition of the Bobcast. Do you make any resolutions? <laughs> if I did, I can tell you mine are already awash in a sea of red wine. <laughs> Much of it consumed last night at Ray Ferraro's house in Vancouver. As Ray and his lovely wife, Cammy were kind enough to host our TSN World Junior Group at their beautiful home. So I guess it goes without saying that this would be the road trip edition of the Bobcast. It's being done in the, the cozy confines of my Vancouver hotel room on, well, i got to be honest with you, it looks like another rainy day in the lower mainland. Now, I've been here since Christmas night, and we've been treated to a handful of some really beautiful sunny days in Vancouver, but we've also had a lot of those stereotypical wet uh, rainy days the rest of the time. So, and listen, I hope the uh, sound quality here is passable. We're not uh, technologically uh, as savvy when we're on the road like this, so ho hopefully this will get the job done. And of course, this would be the World Junior Championship edition of the Bobcast. Although, as I talk to you now, we're still just hours away from those two semifinals, Russia versus the United States and Finland versus Switzerland. Um, wait a second, I feel like there's something missing there. Um, Canada? Canada? Where's Canada? Uh, can you have a World Junior Championship semifinal without Canada? In Canada? Damn right you can, of course. Uh, I know Canadians are bitterly disappointed, and, and rightfully so, with the sixth place finish. I mean, in, in 12 previous occasions where Canada has hosted this tournament, Canada won a medal in every one of those 12 tournaments. So number 13, however, turns out to be really unlucky on that count. So, so what went wrong with uh, this edition of Team Canada? Well, you know, there, there's part of me that's willing to simply write it off as some just bad, really bad puck luck. Um, the reality is Team Canada was, what, 40-odd seconds away from beating Finland 1-0 and moving on to the semifinals against the U.S., um, but let's be honest too, um, this group struggled to generate consistent offense. They couldn't get a power play goal when they really needed one. So it's not as if this was some juggernaut Canadian team that just got one bad bounce. Um, now, it's true that when Canadians lose, they love to point the fingers when things don't go well, love to have their scapegoats, and head coach Tim Hunter certainly got lots of criticism in the wake of the loss to the Finns. And I guess that goes with the territory of being a head coach of Team Canada. But, but I honestly think a lot of the stuff he got ro roasted for, well, I think that's just what happens when a team loses. I mean, when Tim Hunter chose Maxime Comtois to take the penalty shot in, in overtime against Finland and then Comtois missed, that chorus of criticism was really going to be predictable. Hunter picked the wrong guy, should have took Morgan Frost, should have picked Owen Tippett, not Comtois. Um, Comtois is a good shootout guy in the queue. 
Uh, he was judged by the Canadian staff in their pre-tourney shootout practices, and they did a fair bit of it um, to be their best guy. And had he scored, he'd have been a hero, and Hunter would be a lot smarter as Canada prepared for this semi-final game against the U.S. today. Um, but Comtois missed. Now, here's the thing. If When Comtois missed, so, okay, you're, you believe Morgan Frost should have taken it. Well, we don't know if Morgan Frost would have scored or not. And if he'd chosen Morgan Frost and Frost missed, then there would have been a huge chorus, well, it should have been Owen Tippett, or it should have been this guy, or it should have been that guy. And the, for years now at the World Juniors, I always like to say you, 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 can't, you can't prove something that didn't happen, and, which is simply another way of saying that we don't know if Morgan Frost had taken the penalty shot if he would have scored on it. He might have. But you know what? You know, Maxime Comtois might have scored. So you can go round and round in circles on that one. And here's the thing, too. I mean, everybody talked about how well Mikey DiPietro played for Team Canada in that game. And he did. He was, he was a big difference for much of the game. But you know what? Finnish goaltender Uka Pekka Lukanen made a really nice save on Comtois. And he didn't get any credit for it because so many Canadians were so eager and falling all over themselves to target Comtois and Hunter for their failings that they didn't give any credit to the Finnish goaltender, and, and, and that's not right. Now, the other thing you should know is that this 1999 birth year, that is the 19-year-olds the on Team Canada, um, it's not a group that has fared particularly well internationally. Um, I believe the 99s finished fifth at the Ivan Holinka Under-18 tournament uh, a few, few years back. And they finished fifth at the Under-18 World Championships, the springtime tournament. And now here they finish sixth at the World Junior Championships. So not overly great results for this group. Now, the funny thing about that, though, is you look a little closer, both in the Holinka and the Under-18 World Championships. And for that matter, in this World Junior Championship, this 1999-born group, they almost never trailed in any of the games in the tournament. In all three of those tournaments, they literally only trailed for a handful of minutes at a time, yet they lost really close games when it mattered most. So I think we can draw the conclusion that the 19-year-olds comprising this team were, were not blessed with an overabundance of offensive firepower, but I would suggest the following. Neither were the teams they were competing against. I mean, Finland was 40 seconds away from being eliminated and shut out when Alexei Haponiemi got that fluky goal that went in. Um, then Canada misses on the Comtois penalty shot in overtime. Noah Dobson looks like he's about to slam in a one-time a puck into a wide-open net for the win when a stick explodes in his hands and the Finns come back the other way, score the game-winning goal on a deflected shot of Cody Glass's stick and over Mikey DiPietro's shoulder. So listen, I, I don't want to gloss over the team's shortcomings, but to be honest, I didn't think they were any better or worse than the Russians or the Finns. And I honestly think in this instance, Team Canada got victimized by some really bad puck luck. Now, I didn't get a sense that the team was highly disorganized or undisciplined or poorly coached, but they lost. And in the quarterfinals, and a sixth place finish in Canada is no good. So everything is going to be questioned and everything is, is going to be seen as terrible. Uh, I mean, I know Canadians long for the days when they dominated this tournament. And it used to be almost exclusively a Canada-Russia tournament. And Canadians fondly think back to those five straight gold medals between 1993 and 1997, or between 2005 
in 2009. I mean, since 2009, no team has really dominated this tournament the way Canada and Russia used to dominate it. Uh, now, keeping in mind, I don't know yet who's going to win this year's tournament. Um, since to, well, from 2010 to the present, uh, excluding obviously 2019, the Americans have won three gold medals since then. Canada and Finland, I believe, have two apiece. Now, many Canadians would say this simply underlines that the rest of the world has caught up to Canada or surpassed it on the World Junior Championship front. And, and you know what? That's true enough. But I would submit the following for your consideration. It's really a myth that Canada ever really dominated this tournament, at least not to the extent that the Canadians would have you believe we did. I mean, in 1993 in Yavla, and I was there, if it, if it wasn't for Manny Legacy's incredible goaltending, there'd be no gold medal in Yavla that year. Legacy took what was a pretty average Team Canada group and he really lifted it to great heights in a tournament where the Canadians were often outplayed and not by a little either. Um, now, I will grant you this. In 95 in Red Deer, 96 in um, Boston, Canada did have dominating tournaments, no question about that. But in, in 1997, in the gold medal game in Geneva, if it weren't for Mark Denis' goaltending heroics, Mike Babcock's Team Canada would have been run out of the building that day by an American team that dominated them in the gold medal game. Um, in, in now, no question, 2005 in Grand Forks, 2006 in Vancouver, Canada had truly dominating victories those two years. But in 2007, I mean, that was the famous Jonathan Taves, Carey Price shootout win over the Americans in the semifinal. Easily could have gone the other way. In 2008, Matt Halishuk got the overtime game-winning goal for Canada. And anytime you're in overtime of a gold medal game, it could go either way. And I mean, who, who can forget what happened in 2009 in Ottawa with Jordan Eberle in the can-you-believe-it moment. Yes, I can, Gord, um, against the Russians. So, yeah, Canada won five straight gold medals between 2005 and 2009. But let's be honest, luck played a huge part in that. The Americans could have won the shootout that Taves Price year. Um, you know, Canada could have lost in overtime in 2008. And, you know, the Eberly goal was fantastic. I, I'll never forget being in, in the rink in Ottawa when all that went down. But, I mean, as embedded as it is in our Canadian psyche is this great touchstone international hockey moment. If the Russians hadn't fatefully iced the puck and self-destructed, Canada would have been playing for bronze that year. I mean... You can flip it around and say Alexei Haponiemi's last-minute goal um, in the quarterfinals against Canada it could be Finland's Jordan Eberle moment if they were to go on and, and win the gold medal. But that's just hockey. That's puck luck, and that's the World Junior Championships. Um, I won't even get into the whole Maxime Comtois social media troll fest. Um, sadly, it is predictable that when a kid misses a penalty shot in overtime, that lowlifes on Instagram and Twitter will gravitate towards his social media and say vile things to him. And that is more about the, the state of social media than it is even hockey or Canadians or anything else. This sort of thing happens on social media like almost every day to, to people famous and otherwise. And, um, but as for the, you know, it, it, it's a game. It's just, for crying out loud, it's just a game. And they're just kids.
And and I actually, in the fallout on Comtois, I got some tweets from people saying this is all TSN's fault. The TSN profits greatly from the World Junior Championship and shines such a bright spotlight on all these kids that when things go wrong, it's to be expected that there's a backlash and that it's really all TSN's fault. Let, let me read you a quick couple of tweets here. Let me go find these for a second here from a guy who blames TSN for everything that happened to Maxime Comtois. Hold on just a second here. There we go. Okay, found it. Here, here's, I got this on Twitter. Is TSN going to own up to this or are we just going to put it on the overpassionate Canadian fans? You put them in the spotlight to make lots of money, but expect complete clemency when fans try and fingerprint when things go wrong. We as a country shouldn't blame these kids Meanwhile, TSN banked on making millions off these kids without batting an eye. Piss off TSN James Duthie, G. Miller TSN, Ray Ferraro, Bob McKenzie, TSN Sports, trying to now defend the outrageous reaction to 19-year-olds. Laugh out loud. Sorry, I'm just tired of hearing these guys saying to be easy on these kids, which is 100% correct, but at the same time completely exploiting them for dollars and trying to make them heroes for their own agenda. I can't stand that hypocrisy. Well, I guess I would say, what I would say to all that is, would you prefer that the games are not on television? Would we, uh, by that reasoning, we shouldn't let 18,000 people come to the games because we wouldn't want to put pressure. Listen, the kids grow up watching this tournament. They love the tournament. They love everything about it. They want to be a part of it. They know what the rules of engagement are. And and as I said, the one of the things I'm most proud of at uh, at TSN is that we all of us involved we really try hard to to be aware that we're dealing with with teenagers. So in in response to that tweet, I, I would say it's a it's a mostly a big pile of steam and BS to be honest. Um, if you go to Maxime Comtois' Instagram or Twitter account and you say vile things to a teenager because you're upset he didn't score on a penalty shot, that's not on TSN, that's on you. You don't get to deflect anything. You're responsible for your actions. If you're a douche, you're a douche. It's as simple as that. Uh, number two, as I said, TSN and the World Junior Championships have become synonymous. And yeah, the, the, the participants are thrust into the spotlight and great successes are celebrated, and yeah, great failures are heavily scrutinized. But you know, whether it's Gord Miller or Ray Ferraro or Pierre Maguire before Ray, um, back in the days of when I was doing this tournament, I was doing color in the tournament with Paul Romanuk. Before that, Jim Hewson, Gary Green, um, now James Duffy, myself, Jeff O'Neill. I think we've always tried to be cognizant that this is a tournament involving teenagers, and we rarely, if ever, way over top in terms of the criticism and I think we try to remind people that these are kids and that they're not all going to the National Hockey League um, and yet the, the, the tournament itself is a celebration of great hockey. The reason this tournament's as popular with people in Canada as it is and why it's so successful for TSN, there's two reasons for it. Number one, it's absolutely fantastic hockey. It's so fun to watch. It's exciting. And that's the number one reason. The hockey sells. People like watching good hockey. And the number two reason is the time of year. It's at Christmas and New Year's. And people are home with their family. And they like 
to watch international hockey. They like to watch Canadian kids play at a high level. And it becomes a family tradition that you share with your family. And so, as I said, if, if some douchebags are going to be douchey on social media, they don't get to deflect that and, and share the blame with TSN or anyone else. And the, the third point I would make on the, the, the tweets that I got, with the guy says, piss off. I mean, that in itself is kind of ignorant. So anyways, I always find people who reveal themselves to be exactly what they are. And um, anyway, I, I don't know who's going to win the gold medal here, but I can't wait for the two semifinals to happen. And sure, it's disappointing Canada's not in the semis for the Canadian hockey fans out there. But you know what? This Russian team looks great. The Americans look great. Uh, Jack Hughes versus Vasily Podkolzin, uh, two draft eligibles in uh, in the one game. You've got Capo Caco, who's a draft eligible for Finland in the other game. You've got this great Cinderella story of Switzerland in the final four and potentially playing for a medal uh, with Christian Volven, their energetic coach, who uh, last year gave his team no chance against Canada. Exactly that, uh, the famous clip. And uh, listen, it's a great tournament and it's... Uh, it's great hockey, and uh, I'm looking forward to the, the finish, however it goes. Okay, moving away from the World Juniors, back to the NHL. Uh, and by the way, um, I know I'm only gone covering World Juniors for like three, four weeks total, uh, if that. Um, but it, man, I feel like a fish out of water when I come back after the World Juniors, and I feel like I've missed so much of what's going on in the NHL, and... I'm not caught up on things, so I'm going to have to go through that rapid indoctrination period here in a few days to try and get back up to speed on everything that's been going on as I watch from afar. Anyways, um, so uh, first question comes from England, as a matter of fact. Hi, Bob. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I've just finished listening to Season 3, Episode 6 and felt compelled to reach out to you, not in hope of a reply, but more in a hope that you read it. Um, I do have a question I'd love to get your thoughts on. Um, ever since it was announced that Seattle was indeed getting a team, it seems to have come with the caveat that there means there will be a lockout. And during this episode, you commented that you didn't believe that necessarily to be the case. So I wondered what made you feel differently to everyone else, or is it just a case of a first-time listener not picking up on some Bobcast sarcasm Thanks again for the excellent show. This is my first taste of the Bobcast, and it will be a permanent fixture on my podcast list now. Kind regards, Martin Gowland, Newcastle, England. Well, Martin, thanks for uh, listening to the Bobcast, enjoying it, and reaching out. Now, as for, you're right, um, a lot of people thought, well, with Seattle coming in in the fall of 2020, that could get dicey because that's when there's likely to be a lockout. And I think all hockey fans and hockey media are forgiven if they naturally assume there's going to be a lockout because every time the NHL has had an opportunity to lock the players out, it's done so. So I guess there's a lot of people who think, well, if, if the opportunity exists, then why wouldn't it happen this time? Um, and it could, but here's why I think there's a chance that there won't be a lockout. First off, the, the background. Um, next, th this coming September, so September of 2019, um, both the NHL and the Players Association have the ability to serve notice uh, 
that they're terminating the CBA in the fall of 2020, September 15th of, of 2020. So, um, I've, actually, I should have looked this up, but not doing my homework. But one, one's got the option. I want to say that the league has the option on September 1st. Anyways, I forget whether the league or the Players Association has the first option, um, but I, I think it's the league. I don't think the league's going to re... I, I don't think the league will just say, yeah, you know what, we're serving notice, we're going to reopen. Um, Gary Batman was prepared to extend this CBA even further, um, just leave things status quo um, in return for if the players wanted to go to the Olympics. So I think generally speaking and this is unusual, the owners like the current system the way it's set up. So I don't think the, the league will necessarily serve notice to, to reopen. Um, then the, the onus would be on the players to decide whether they want to do that or not. Um, and the players hate escrow, and we've talked about that before. Um, and there's certain things about this deal that the players absolutely hate. I just don't know if they hate it enough that they would reopen. And so it, it's conceivable that neither side would reopen and the CBA would continue till I think it's 2022 and that there wouldn't be any labor disruption in the fall of 2020. It would automatically kick over for another couple of years. Um, I think that's possible, uh, possibly could happen. Um, but I think it's, it's possible maybe the players would decide to reopen. I think it'd be a mistake. I don't think that the NHL Players Association right now, in terms of its overall solidarity, I, I know they don't like escrow, but to say we're going to put a cap on escrow actually means they would want to go away from the hard cap system that the league fought so hard to get in 2004. And if, if that's a hill that the National Hockey League is going to die on, and I, I just don't think that the players are ready to go to Armageddon um, to get rid of escrow entirely. And so, you know, maybe there's some tweaks or whatever. I don't know. But I'm, I know there have been negotiations going on um, that Don Fear and Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and the, the various executives from both sides have had some meetings prior to Christmas and will again here in the next little while. And they've got to sort out whether it's going to be a World Cup in 2020. And I know by the time the All-Star Weekend comes at the end of the month, the league and the Players Association expect to have some clarity on that. So um, I guess the, what I'm basically saying is um, I'd be really surprised if either side's spoiling badly for a fight. I could be wrong on that. And if, if one side or the other does reopen it, well, then all bets are off. Um, because once that happens, if the players, for example, said we're reopening, we want the, the CBA to expire in the fall of 2020, then that's where the league could still conceivably lock the players out um, as they get closer and, and try and look for the things that they want, you know, more term limits, uh, not, not the ability to do seven or eight year deals, get them down to five, change the structure of signing bonuses and things like that. There's always a laundry list of things the owners want from the players. Um, and if I were the players, I'm not sure I would want to open the door to allowing the owners to try and exploit any of that. But uh, we'll see where it goes. And, and what would be ideal, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily out of the question, what would be ideal would be for Gary Bettman and Don Fear 
to negotiate a new CBA here, tweak some of the things here over the next number of months and get an extension and not even worry about the reopeners and just basically come up with a new CBA that addresses the players' needs. And that would obviously have to include the Olympics, which I think uh, by hook or by crook, the NHL will be in, uh, in Beijing for the, uh, the next Olympics, but we'll, we'll have to see on that. But anyways, that's uh, maybe a, mine is a minority view on that, but uh, I'm not jumping on the there's going to be a lockout for sure bandwagon at all. The next three questions are kind of interrelated, and it, it always amuses me um, to no end on the Bobcast when I seem to get a bunch of questions about the same subject matter from different people all around the same time. So let me read these questions to you, and you'll, you'll see the theme. This first one came in on Monday, December 10th. It's from Trevor in Connecticut. He says, hello, Bob. This is kind of a weird what-if question. If a team retaining cap on a contract and was to reacquire that player, would his cap become whole again? Could they trade, then trade his entire cap or retain a different amount? Thank you, Trevor from Connecticut. So as I said, that's on December 10th. On December 11th, Michael Dodich or Dodich says, Hi, Bob, really enjoy listening to the Bobcast, and it's always part of my weekly hockey, hockey podcast lineup. I was talking with some friends about a question I had regarding retained salary trades, and someone said, quote, that sounds like a question for Bob McKenzie, unquote. So I thought I would send you a Bobcast question in the hope you have an answer for it. I know that when a team trades a player and retains a portion of the player's salary, said team cannot trade back for that player for a year. However, let's say hypothetically, after that year has passed, a team trades for a player that they are retaining salary on from an earlier trade. Would that team be allowed to trade that player again and this time include his entire salary cap hit as salary cap hit as part of the trade? For example, let's say that Ottawa were to trade back for Dion Phaneuf, then trade him again to another team. Would the Senators be able to stop retaining $1.75 million of his salary for the rest of the contract? Or once a team has elected to retain salary on the player, are they on the hook for that retained salary for the duration of the contract, regardless of where the player goes? Thanks for taking time to read my question. I'm looking forward to listening to future Bobcasts for the rest of the season. Kind regards, Michael from Windsor, Ontario. Okay, so that was Trevor on December 10th, Michael on December 11th, and then Mitchell on December 17th says, Hi Bob, really appreciate the time, effort, and intricate details you give when answering questions on the Bobcast. Wondering if you might be able to answer a question that I've yet to see brought up, but I'm very curious about. The Toronto Maple Leafs retained 15%, or 1.2 million, of Phil Kessel's cap hit when they traded him to Pittsburgh. With Kessel's contract not expiring until after the 21-22 season, the Leafs are currently set to have his retained salary effect their cap for cap space for three more seasons beyond this year. At last year's trade deadline, when Pittsburgh acquired Derek Broussard from Ottawa, we saw a third team, Vegas, become part of this trade and retain 40% or $2 million of Broussard's $5 million cap hit. I believe the league originally rejected some parameters of this three-team deal and the teams had to rework it to get the league's stamp of approval. My question for you then is this. Are the Leafs allowed to trade the retained salary, $1.2 million per year, from the Phil Kessel deal as a way of creating more cap space? 
or his retained salary an untradeable commodity for the duration of said player's contract. Any insight in this regard would be great because if eligible to be traded, it seems like a total Kyle Dubas move. Thanks from Mitchell. Okay, uh, the short answer to all these questions is that once a team retains salary, they're stuck with that retained salary. So in the example that Michael put forth about Ottawa trading back for Dion Phaneuf and then trading to another team, they couldn't lose the original salary retention on Phaneuf by reacquiring him and then retrading him somewhere else and getting rid of all his salary. Um, once you retain salary, you are on the hook for it. Um, in response, and I think it was one second here, uh, yeah, it was Trevor who said about asking if it would become whole again. No, it doesn't become whole again, and you can't trade it. And then we had Mitchell asking, can you just trade retained salary? Could Kyle Dubas take the Phil Kessel money and say, I'm trading this to somebody who's got more cap room and will give up an asset to, to do it? No, you can't do that either. Once you've retained salary, you're stuck with it. And even if you were to, if the Leafs were to reacquire Phil Kessel, um, then they'd be on the hook for 100% of his salary. But if they went to trade him, as we used in the FNUF example, and they could get rid of the whole salary, they'd still be on the hook for the original money they retained. In any case, three questions on salary cap uh, and salary retention. Uh, probably more detail than any of us care about, but you know what? I always find it curious that three separate guys in three separate towns all decided to write about the same issue and ask the same issue um, on the same week. I'd like to wish a very happy new year to our good friends at Untuck It. Uh, we were blessed to have uh, Untuck It come on board as a sponsor on the Bobcast in 2018 and uh, look forward to continued involvement with Untuck It in 2019. And if you're anything like me, you've made a few New Year's resolutions and maybe you're going to lose a few LBs. Maybe you're not going to dress like such a slob in the future. And uh, on both those counts, our good friends at Untucket can help you out in a big, big way. Uh, with more than 50 sizing options, every guy can find the perfect shirt. So uh, go to Untucket.com and check out all their new arrivals. Uh, be sure to use the promo code BOBCAST for 20% off your purchase. Now keep in mind that the beauty of Untuck It is that you know you wear the, the, the old dress shirt untucked goes down to about your knees just looks terrible and uh, some guys tuck their shirts in and they got no business tucking their shirts in it just doesn't look good. The beauty of Untuck It it's the perfect length it uh, falls just around the your jean pocket so it's not too long it's not too short very stylish. They got all sorts of solids and plaids and stripes and you name it. They've got it. And the, the fit is uh, fantastic. As I said, more than 50 sizing options. Literally every guy, no matter his size, can find the perfect shirt. And as I said, use the promo code BOBCAST to get 20% off your purchase. And uh, if you happen to be in the greater Toronto area, uh, be sure to drop by Untuck its first Canadian retail store in Sherway Gardens, uh, or you can shop 
online anywhere. So that's untuckit.com. Use promo code BOBCAST, B-O-B-C-A-S-T, to get your 20% off. And again, Happy New Year to the Untuckit folks. Okay, uh, some more questions here. Um, this next one comes from, hold on, who's it come from? Come from Mitchell. And hold on, the pages are getting, my printout is getting stuck here. It's Mitch from Belleville. That's what I was looking for. Mitch from Belleville. Subject matter, Ovechkin, goat, question mark. Hi, Bob. I listen every other week, but this is my first time emailing. I really enjoy the laid-back, personable tone of the Bobcast and also the fact that it's family-friendly, which allowed me to listen when my kids are in the car. Well, as a quick aside for me, it's not always family-friendly, but maybe I'll have to keep that in mind now that I know your kids are listening. Um, Mitch says, I'm a Leafs fan, but my question is about the great eight, Alex Ovechkin. I'm sort of obsessed with stats, especially when they are of historical significance. I'm typing this moments after Ovi scored his hat-trick against the Detroit Red Wings. Um, he now has 25 goals for first in the league, four ahead of second place. According to my amateur research, if Ovechkin wins the Rocket Richard Trophy this year, he will become the first player to ever lead the league in goals eight times. He is currently tied with Bobby Hull with seven goal titles. Additionally, he is clearly on pace to record his eighth 50-goal season, a feat topped by only Gretzky and Bossy, who notched five 50-goal campaigns when goals were, evil, uh, were evidently easier to come by. On to my question. If Ovechkin scores 50 and or wins the Richard Trophy this year, is that enough for you to call him unequivocally the greatest goal scorer of all time? Thanks for reading. And that's Mitch from Belleville. i got to be honest with you, Mitch. Um, I think I can probably say it now. I think Alexander Ovechkin is arguably the greatest goal scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. And, it, you know, it, I, I could look at Gretzky's 93 goals or whatever he got. Um, I could talk about Phil Esposito's six scoring titles. I can talk about Bobby Hull, seven. I can talk about what a natural goal scorer and how much I appreciated the goal scoring exploits exploits of Mike Bossy, amongst others, Temu Solani. There's There's been so many great goal scorers. But um, to your point, if, if you adjust for the era and the fact that when Ovechkin's been scoring his goals, how difficult it's been relative to how much easier it might have been to score goals in the 80s. I won't say the 90s because that's when the dead puck era kind of started. But um, nevertheless, um, his goal scoring exploits are absolutely incredible. And um, he's in the news for another reason uh, this week, obviously. Uh, by now, everybody knows that he's taken a pass on the NHL All-Star game. And I don't think too many people got bent out of shape about it. There were a few, and I don't get that at all. Um, I should say up front, I don't have a problem with the National Hockey League rule that says if you take a pass on the All-Star game without a real good reason, uh, you know, injury, then um, you have to sit out one game either on the front end or the back end of the All-Star break. I don't have a problem with that rule because I think it's, it's just a little bit of a speed bump that you put in there to make all players think twice before they pull the plug on an All-Star game invitation. It is their, I, I believe it is an obligation of the players to go to the All-Star game whenever possible. 
Um, in the in the instance that we're talking about here with Ovechkin, and I know lately now there's a bit of a backlash. He shouldn't have to sit out the game, um, uh, the regular season game for Washington on either the front end or the back end of the All Star break. Um, I don't have a problem with him sitting out the game. As I said, I think it's generally speaking, it's a good rule for the league to have. But I have no problems whatsoever with Ovechkin not going to the All-Star game. This is a guy who's gone way above and beyond when it comes to promoting the game, promoting the All-Star game. Uh, think of all those uh, shootouts and breakaway competitions and where he's the life of the party and he's got a real joy about he, the way he plays the game and uh, he's promoted the NHL um, more than enough on multiple occasions so he doesn't get the total free pass on missing the All-Star game because there is the one-game penalty involved. But um, nobody should be the least bit bent out of shape on Alex Ovechkin not being at the All-Star game, um, for sure. And I think I was just looking on Instagram. Hold on, let me see. Where's my Instagram? Um, just a second. This is good podcasting, isn't it? Here we go, Instagram. Now let's see if I can find the thing. I just noticed he was back in the, there was a good IG post here talking about him and we'll find it eventually. Uh, oh boy. TSN's been posting. Here we go. There it is. 14 seasons of 30 plus goals because uh, Ovi scored his 30th goal last night. He's never scored less than 32 in a full season, and it says 14 seasons of 30-plus goals ties Gordie Howe, Wayne Gretzky, and Marcel Dion for third-most 30-goal seasons of all time. He shows no signs of slowing up. There's been no Stanley Cup hangover for him, although if anybody were going to have a hangover from the Stanley Cup celebration, it would be Ovi. Uh, so anyways, uh, no issues with him missing the All-Star game. Uh, I think you can say with some degree of certainty that he's the greatest goal scorer in the history of the game. Okay, next question comes from Stefan. Hi, Bob. In light of the slew of pending RFAs that you mentioned on a recent Bobcast, I was wondering why teams don't use what I will allow myself to call the upside-down bridge contract, by which I mean bridge contracts that are more generous than the conventional bridge contracts. Although this is what the Leafs may have tried with Nylander given their long-term cap crunch, it isn't something that I recall ever seeing. For a few decades now, it seems to me elite players have been exempt from a bridge deal while the bridge has stuck around for the very good players that have to prove how good they actually are. As we saw with the P.K. Subban and Jacob Truba bridge deals, both players were essentially strong-armed into signing contracts that essentially gave them the right to play to prove their worth. Subban won the long game while the story will unfold in the Truba case. In both scenarios, the relationship between the player and the club certainly took a hit. The Nylander impasse, from what I gather, wasn't so much about the cap figure as much about whether or not he deserved a pass on a bridge deal, as is expected with Matthews and Marner. This brings me to the pending contracts for Patrick Laine and Kyle Connor. Most would likely assess Laine as an elite player while Connor is merely very good. Unless the Jets can get Connor at a long-term discount a la Ehlers, I anticipate the Jets will attempt a bridge deal with Connor and a max-term deal with Line. Why not upside-down upside bridge them both? I've watched the Jets all year, and, 
and last. And in my view, Line A still has a long way to go before truly achieving superstar status. Observers don't watch the Jets on a regular basis, will of course be awed by his November numbers, but may not know that he was justifiably relegated to third line duties in the month of October and can otherwise be invisible on many nights. So why not give Kyle Connor $8 million a year and Line A $10 million a year for two years each? This would give them fair market value, put the onus on them to validate their worth at those figures, allow the club to take a longer look at their talent before making a significant long-term financial commitment, all the while preserving good relations between club and player instead of putting them in front of a sign or sit situation. I hope my question makes it on. Either way, thanks for your time. Stéphane Allard from Gatineau, Quebec. Well, Stéphane, um, what I would say is this. The upside-down bridge deal you talked about um, is really just, as you talked, as you mentioned, is market value on a short-term deal. And the only reason that it wouldn't make any sense to use the examples you used, if you give Kyle Connor $8 million a year for two years and line A $10 million a year for two years, you're effectively giving them five or six or seven year deals for those numbers because what's involved is when those contracts are expiring, you have to give the player a qualifying offer in order to retain his rights. And the qualifying offer has to be what the guy made the season before or very close to it. So when Kyle Connor's contract is coming up, you're obliged to give him a qualifying offer of at least $8 million. Same thing with Line A. If he was on a $10 million deal, when his two-year bridge deal is expiring, you would be obliged to give him a contract, a qualifying offer of $10 million. What the player could effectively do then is take his qualifying offer every year and walk himself to free agency. So the contract would then become a, like a four- or a five-year deal at $10 million a year for Line A or for Connor. And if you don't give that qualifying offer... Um, the player becomes an unrestricted free agent um, and you would lose all your rights with the player. So um, I get what you're saying about giving the market value in the short term, but uh, because of the qualifying offer situation, it would be the equivalent of giving them a long-term deal at those numbers. And these teams want to buy years of unrestricted free agency. That's the value for teams like Winnipeg or Toronto with players like Connor and Line A and Nylander and Matthews and Marner and on and on it goes. You want to buy some years of unrestricted free agency so that you have control over the player for a longer period of time. Uh, next question comes from James Evans. Hi, Bob. Hope your summer went well. Does Jake Gardner get the JVR farewell this year from the Toronto Maple Leafs? Good luck with the season. James from Edmonton. Well, James, um, I would say right now it's looking difficult uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs to re-sign Jake Gardner in the offseason when you consider what they just did with Nylander, when you consider they've got to still do Matthews, they've still got to do Marner, and uh, those guys, the prices won't be going down on those guys anytime soon with the way that they've been playing. Um, with Jake Gardner going down restricted free agency this summer, it, he may well be in that JVR situation where the Leafs simply don't have the requisite dollars to give him market value and, and keep him in the fold. I would say this, though. Um, Toronto Maple Leafs highly value Jake Gardner as a hockey player. I know he's a polarizing player for a lot of um, hockey fans, especially Leaf fans. 
um, and people won't soon forget his minus five in uh, game seven against Boston last spring. But I think management and the coaching staff have an enormous amount of time for Jake Gardner. And I think Jake Gardner really, really, really likes it in Toronto and thinks that he recognizes that this could be a special opportunity for a, a lot of years to come. The problem you run into when you look at the point totals that Gardner puts up, the minutes that he plays, um, is that he's likely to command more than $6 million on the open market, somewhere between $6 million and $7 million per year on a long-term contract. I've got to believe those numbers, given what Matthews Marner, Nylander, um, Tavares uh, are all going to be making, um, it's too rich for Toronto. So then the question then becomes... How much is Jake Gardner prepared to discount his services to maintain his opportunity to stay in Toronto? And that's a question I don't have an answer for. And I don't know that Jake or his agent would have an answer right now, or that the Leafs would either. But I would say this, as, and, I, and I said it once, the Leafs really like Jake Gardner, and I think Jake Gardner really likes being a Leaf. What they need to have happen, and, and as I say, I'm not predicting that it will happen, but what they need to have happen is kind of what happened with the Vancouver Canucks when the Sedins were coming up to free agency. And they took, the Sedins took very friendly club deals. If I remember correctly, it was a five-year deal at 6.1 million or thereabouts for the Sedin twins. And, and that sent a message right through the whole Vancouver organization that the very best players on the team, their franchise players, were taking significant market value discounts to stay in Vancouver. And then what happened was you, then you had all the defensemen, Bieksa, Edler, everybody was signing between 4 and $5 million on club-friendly deals. It's one of the reasons why the Canucks, when they went to the cup final against the Boston Bruins, um, they were structured in such a way that nobody on the defense was, you know, they, everybody was making between four and five or no, no more than five, six million dollars a year. And the best players on the team were making 6.1. And that kind of kept everybody else a little bit in line. Um, with Tavares signing the big deal that he signed with Matthews and Marner about to sign what they're going to sign. Uh, with Nylander getting market value at basically seven million bucks a year. Um, the Leafs have not created, not been able to create that environment that that was existed in Vancouver because of the Sedins. So it'll be up to Jake Gardner to see how low can he go to still want to stay in Toronto and weigh those options. So that's um, all I would say. The, I think the difference between JVR and, and Jake is that JVR knew 100% that there was no way he was going to get an offer from Toronto that would be anywhere close to the ballpark. Uh, it wasn't going to get an offer at all. Uh, the Leafs had to move on from him. Um, I don't think they'll be as quick to want to move on from Jake, but uh, they may have to when it's all said and done. Okay then, so time for some listener feedback. We got some good ones this week. First one is from Clayton Henderson. This was actually back in late October, but it's still pretty funny and applicable. So Clayton says, listening to episode three at the moment, where you're talking about modifying the current suspension system, so that a player misses games against a team he caused the infraction. You said it could get confusing if the player still had games owing after they retired. Well, this wouldn't be any different than the current system. Your buddy Noodles, for instance, still owes three games that he never got to serve before hanging up the pad, so I wouldn't get too hung up on that. 
Uh, Clayton then goes on to say, a bit of a tech rant here, but TSN needs to make the podcast downloadable. The online player sucks, like really sucks. That from Clayton. Well, Clayton, good news. Um, TSN podcasts have always been downloadable. Um, in fact, we're on Spotify now, which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Google Play, you can download the Bobcast, Rubber Boots podcast, all the good TSN stuff um, from any of those spots. So that's the, the tech answer to your question. I love the you brought up the, the noodles thing because this is funny on a couple of little Noodles, of course, is Jamie McLennan. Um, who does a great job on Overdrive with the boys, but also does a lot of um, a lot of games, uh, color commentary and what have you. Anyways, uh, the suspension to which Clayton is referring to is uh, Calgary-Detroit, and uh, Noodles kind of went haywire with his stick, uh, chopping people. And uh, I laugh about it because I remember at the time it happened, I was on radio, or T- actually I was on TSN, talking about it and I basically said ah, it's not that big a deal you know it was boys will be boys stuff at the end of a game no big deal and Kenny Holland my good pal and the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings went absolutely crazy um he uh he, he's he was pals with Gord Miller too and he he called Gordon he says you tell that effing hockey insider <laughs> and we've always had a running joke that my name is the effing hockey insider uh, to Kenny Holland. So, anyways, uh, you're absolutely correct on noodles. He he didn't he retired before the suspension could be served. And the funny part of that story is that noodles was doing a game in Florida. And if you remember, Luongo got injured, and then the other goalie got injured. They were looking for a backup goalie, and they asked noodles, who was doing color commentary on the game, could could he get dressed and go in? And he says, No, I can't. I'm still suspended. So. Uh, that's pretty funny. But anyways, a little something on suspensions, noodles, and the effing hockey insider, as Kenny Holland still jokingly refers to me on many days. Uh, next listener feedback comes from Peter Tilly. Uh, Hi, Bob. I started listening to the Bobcast last year, and now I look forward to every new episode. I grew up near Montreal in the 1960s and 70s and became a lifelong Habs fan. My first game at the Forum was for my birthday in 67, Habs versus the Red Wings, and neither Rogie Vashon nor Roy Edwards wore a mask. Uh, I went to many games at the Forum before moving to Winnipeg and then Colorado back in the early 1980s. I try getting back for games at the Bell Centre every couple of years and join a large number of local Hab fans at the Pepsi Centre every time they come to play the Avalanche. I wear my Canadian's windbreaker proudly when I travel. I've noticed the CH in several places and had other comments on my CH as well. In 2015, walking along the sidewalk next to the Tiber River in Rome, I spotted a Habs fan walking on the other side of the river. A week later, on a tour in Pompeii, I was approached by fellow Habs fans. In 2016, I was at Stonehenge and was approached for a photo by a gentleman who asked if he could take my picture with Stonehenge in the background to send to his buddy, a Bruins fan, just to drive him nuts. Turns out the gentleman was a retired high school teacher from Winnipeg and as an amateur had scored on Tretiak in an exhibition game in the 1960s. Just a few weeks ago in London, the original one, I spotted CH on the hat of a fellow traveler on the tube. A few days later on the tube, a departing passenger called out, Go Habs, go! to me. My question is, in your travels around the world, how often do you see NHL branded gear? And is there a particular team such as one of the original six that is more common? Thanks for all the work you put into in the Bobcast. That from 
Peter Tilly. Well, Peter, uh, proud Hab fan that you are. You know, the funny thing is, I don't do a lot of world travel. I mean, I was in Italy um, last summer. Don't remember seeing much of any NHL branded stuff when I was in Italy. Wasn't looking for it either, mind you. Um, but most of the other trips I'm on, and I, and I don't go on that many, but they were generally hockey related. So I'm not sure that I could really come up with anything off the top of my head. There's no question, though, that the original six teams, Montreal, Boston, um, in particular, I think those two teams in the Leafs, um, yeah, so probably those three more so than maybe the Wings, the Rangers, and the Hawks. But even yeah, any of the original six teams uh, seem to have a tremendous following worldwide, and uh, and those brands are all, for various reasons, iconic. So anyways, uh, that's for the Hab fans out there, and uh, thanks to, to Peter for... For that bit of listener feedback, um, here's a short, sweet one. Uh, this is from Xavier in Las Vegas. Hi, Bob. Just want to say I really appreciate your work and dedication to the game. Well, thanks, Xavier. That's very nice, somebody to say something nice. Uh, here's one from uh, Blainville, Quebec. This one would be from Omar. Sir, I just want to say I've been, that I've been watching and listening to you for years. I just want to say thank you for all the years and all the efforts you put into your job. There is no one I enjoy listening to when it comes to hockey talk more than you. Keep up those Bobcasts. They're amazing to listen to, especially when you're miles away from home, 35,000 feet in the air with no internet. You are the heart and soul of TSN. Keep up the great work. All of you at TSN are incredible. Here's to many more years to come. That from Omar in, uh, looks like, Blainville, Quebec. So thank you very much. Everybody's being so nice. Uh, Happy New Year, Omar and everybody else. Uh, Here's another one. This one from uh, Alan in Ottawa. Dear Bobby, I love you in the show. Thank you for all the effort you've put into honing your craft over the years. As for the frequency of the show, I like the current bi-weekly schedule. As for the format, I love that it's 100% you. I imagine that takes a lot more preparation, but it is wonderful and relaxing to sit and listen to you for an hour or so. Uh, As an aside, my wife would probably say not so much. Um, That's me putting that in there, by the way. Uh, That one time you had a guest, the guy with the muddy boots was pretty funny. How could you possibly top that? Of course, what Alan's referring to is when I jokingly had James Duffy and Puffy from the Roar Boots podcast on. as That was in Nashville during the cup final a couple of years ago. Uh, Alan goes on to say, but if you ever did want to have another guest, I think it should be your sons. I hope your nuts are hanging healthy. Mine are. Thank you and kind regards, Alan in Ottawa. There you go. Maybe we will have the... Uh, uh, the Sean and Mike McKenzie with the, their dad podcast. Um, Sean might have to get special dispensation from his employer on that one um, since he works for uh, somebody not named TSN. But uh, thanks for the kind words, Alan, and um, we'll keep uh, we'll keep things going here. Uh, next one comes from Sweden, and this guy's a huge fan of the Bobcast, and his name's Tommy. He says, hi, Bob, it's 11 a.m. in Sweden, and I've just been at the gym working out for a couple of hours. Right now, I'm sitting and waiting for the tram. I'm listening to your Canadian team previews and just want to write you a few words and tell you how much I love and appreciate all the work you put into hockey and for us, the fans. You are truly a big inspiration and a role model for myself. Huge thanks. I'm a big podcast fan and listening to a lot of podcasts 
Hayes, Noodle and the O-Dog on Overdrive, Leafs Lunch among others, but your podcast, The Bobcast, is without a doubt my number one favorite. I want to write you and say how much I appreciate and like your podcast, The Bobcast, and I listen to every episode and look forward to everyone like it's Christmas Eve. I do understand you're a super busy man and I understand if you don't having all the time for The Bobcast, but I deeply hope there are many more to come. That from Sincerely, Tommy Enroth in Sweden. And Tommy uh, writes regularly questions and feedback. And so thanks very much, Tommy. And it's always great to uh, hear from uh, from as far away as Sweden. And I do know a lot of the listeners on the Bobcast um, are from European countries. So that's, uh, that's great. Okay, uh, next bit of listener feedback comes from Matt Todd. Hey, Bob, I don't really have a question per se so much as a comment re-Italian wines. Not that it matters so much, and feel free to skip to the end, but I'm 35 years old, born and raised mostly in Ottawa, diehard Canucks fan, family's from BC, and have been watching you on TSN for as long as I can remember. For the past year and a half, I've been living in Copenhagen for work, which has afforded me several opportunities to take the weekend holidays via short, cheap flights to several cities around Europe, including at least three visits to various Italian destinations to meet up with my mom, who, being now retired, had been traveling there on an extended tour. Long story short, the culinary and beverage peak of these stops was Sicily, and they have this wine, Nero Davola, dry, full-body red that I cannot recommend enough, pairs well with swordfish, arancini, and just about anything else, not sure how well stocked the LCBO is, but you uh, you would do you uh, do yourself a favor to take a look. Anyway, I thought I'd give my two cents and just want to add that I'm very much enjoying listening to the podcast, and I think you're doing an excellent job balancing both the hockey and non-hockey segments. In particular, anything related to food, drink, music, Netflix. Keep up the good work, and best wishes, Matt from Copenhagen. Well, there we go, a Canadian expat in Copenhagen, and as I said before, whether it's Tommy and in Sweden or Matt in Copenhagen, it's always great to hear from the four corners of the earth, uh, big fans of the Bobcast, and I thank everybody for that. The final word on this edition of the Bobcast is uh, qualifies in the better late than never uh, email reception. Um, this one was sent on December 4th from our good friend Joshua Marshall in Caroline, Alberta, Subject matter, Florida Panthers. Hello, Bob. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I think the fact it's just you doing it and you don't have a co-host makes it great. My question for the week is about the Florida Panthers. I've emailed you before about my friend, Alexander Petrovic. He's recently been a healthy scratch in a few games lately for the Panthers. I don't really understand why. He leads the team and hits and block shots. Since he was paired with Keith Yandel, it really got Yandel going. Last year, you spoke about him on Insider Trading and he's been on the TSN trade bait list for some time now. It feels like the Panthers don't want to move him for the backlash they would get for protecting him in the expansion draft when they lost and traded Riley Smith and Jonathan Marcheseau to go to Vegas. What do you think the market is like for a guy like Petrovic, and what team do you think would be a great fit for him if he were to be traded? Thanks, Joshua Marshall in Caroline, Alberta. Well, Joshua... I think the Florida Panthers are going to probably trade Petrovic to, a, I don't know, a team like the Edmonton Oilers, and that maybe it would be for a third-round pick and Chris Weidman, and, of course, you already get the joke because uh, the trade went down. So Joshua's buddy from Alberta is back home with the Edmonton Oilers. And it was, it was interesting because the Oilers made a couple of deals that day. 
They uh, they made the Petrovic trade, and then Peter Shirelli turned around and traded Drake Kajula uh, to the Chicago Blackhawks for Brandon Manning. So more defense help for the uh, for the Oilers. Now Shirelli was pretty heavily criticized by a lot of people for the moves. Um, on the Petrovic one, I don't have a big problem with Petrovic making the homecoming in Edmonton. Um, I, I believe Chris Weidman going was just a contract that, that Edmonton wanted to get rid of, and the real cost there was a third-round pick. And um, and I understand the pressure and the urgency to try and make the playoffs, and on a blue line that's been pretty banged up with injuries and it's not very good to begin with, I think giving up a third-round pick is worth the roll of the dice, um, given the, 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 the crisis situation of having to make the playoffs this year. And I know Petrovic is not a guy that uh, is loved by those who uh, who love the fancy stats and what have you because he is a defense-first defenseman who, as Joshua said, is more likely to block shots and, and uh, spend time in his own end than at the other end of the ice. So I get all that, but I also think that the Oilers could use um, some of those skills on their blue line. So I'm willing to give Petrovic a chance to go in and see if he can make a difference in Edmonton, and uh, I don't blame Shirelli for giving up a draft pick to do that. I'm not nearly as keen on the Manning for Kajula deal, which had other elements to it, but basically, uh, you know, Garrison went the other way, and a, a Swedish defenseman, uh, Robin Norell, um, who's playing in Sweden, is is property of the Oilers here. But what it really boiled down to in the in the short term here is Kajula for Manning, and. Um, Listen, I know Kajula wasn't uh, producing on a consistent basis. Um, few people outside of Dreisaitl and McDavid are. Um, but Kajula's got some quickness. He's got some offensive ability. And I think he's a guy in the right situation. And Chicago might be that right situation for him where he could produce some, some pretty decent numbers down the road. And I think for an Edmonton Oiler team that's not that quick and doesn't have much offensive depth, um, I understand they've got holes to fill on the blue line, but I think they created another hole up front. And I'm not sure that Manning is necessarily the answer um, to filling the hole on the blue line in Edmonton. So give, I'll give them both a chance to see what they can do and see how the Oilers fare. Uh, I mean, it, lately it seems the Oilers win games when Koskinen stands on his head and they lose games when he doesn't. And uh, that's not necessarily the recipe for long-term success and to make the playoffs or to make noise in the playoffs but let's give the Manning and uh, and Petrovic acquisitions a little bit of time to see where they shake out but uh, I, I didn't like uh, the Oilers give I didn't like Kajula being included as part of that Manning deal anyways uh, listen I'd love to talk longer um, I've got lots of other questions here lots of other Things we could talk about, but you know what? It's uh, time for me to get to the rink. Russia, USA, uh, coming up very shortly here uh, for me. And uh, probably by the time you're listening to this, you will already know the outcome. Um, but really looking forward to the Russia-USA game and then uh, Finland and Switzerland later tonight. And another great World Juniors. It's unfortunate for Canadians that Canada did not make it to the Final Four, but... Uh, that's life in the big city of Vancouver. So um, happy new year to everybody. Um, stick with those resolutions. And uh, we'll be back at you in a couple of weeks. 
So uh, thanks for listening and uh, catch you down the road. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.